I see the coronavirus as a biological response of Gaia, our living planet, to the ecological and social emergency that humanity has brought upon itself. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. When the Tao of Physics was published in 1975, few people knew its author, the Austrian-born physicist Fritjof Capra. That would quickly change. What began as Capra's passion project to explore the connection between Eastern mysticism and Western science became a global phenomenon. The book sold millions of copies and has been translated into 23 languages. Fritjof Capra has gone on to be a trailblazing thinker and writer about systems theory, deep ecology, and green politics. He is the author or co-author of about a dozen books, a number of which have been international bestsellers. The main focus of his writing and activism has been to help build sustainable communities. He is founding director of the Center for Eco-Literacy in Berkeley, California, which advances education for sustainability. Capra, who is now 82 years old and lives in Berkeley, has just published a new book, Patterns of Connection, Essential Essays from Five Decades. I began by asking him to explain his original thesis in the Tao of Physics. Let me, let me give you a little bit of personal uh, historical context. Uh, I uh, began to study physics. I'm Austrian. I grew up in Innsbruck in the Alps and moved to Vienna for my graduate work in theoretical physics, got my PhD there. And from my student days, I was very interested in the philosophy of physics, in the philosophy implied by quantum physics, relativity theory, these theories of 20th century physics. I was very influenced by a book by Werner Heisenberg, who is one of the founders of quantum physics. And the book is called Physics and Philosophy. It's a classic now. And in this book, Heisenberg describes very vividly how a handful of European physicists in the 1920s were faced with a very strange and unexpected reality when they studied atoms and subatomic particles. And they saw themselves challenged in using their basic concepts, their language, their whole view of reality. They had to change all that. That influenced me very much already as a young student. And then in the 1960s, I became interested in Eastern philosophy, Eastern mysticism, meditation, yoga, and so on. This was a big trend in, in those days, you know, the Beatles went to India, George Harrison started playing sitar and, and all that. So I got interested in Indian culture and philosophy. And almost immediately when I read the, the, the Indian texts like the Bhagavad Gita and other texts of Buddhism, I saw significant parallels between that change of consciousness that Heisenberg described in his book, Physics and Philosophy, and the change of consciousness that uh, the Eastern mystics were advocating. And so I studied these parallels and uh, uh, wrote a few articles and then published my first book, The Tao of Physics, Tao being a Chinese word for reality, the nature of reality. 
Uh, and uh, the basic thesis of the book is that physics or science in general, but physics in particular, and uh, mysticism or spiritual traditions may seem to be, to be very different at first, but they in fact have a lot of things in common. What they have in common is that they are empirically based. In science, we do make systematic observation, we, we do experiments, and then we build theories to explain the data we collect. So it's empirically based. The same for the mystics. The empirical process is meditation. In meditation, they experience a certain uh, perspective, a certain view of reality, which is uncommon. So both are empirically based. Uh, the second thing they have in common is that both say that in these uh, extraordinary states of awareness, in, in deep meditation for the mystics and in these subatomic experiments for the physicists, in these states of unusual or extraordinary awareness, um, the world appears very different from the way it appears in our everyday world. And it is something that cannot be very well described in ordinary language. So that's a big point that I realized in the early 70s, that we have to go beyond ordinary language. So um, in, in spiritual traditions, they would use poetic language, they would use symbols, they would use metaphors. And in science, we use models that approximate the experience, but can never describe it fully. And what emerges uh, from, from in both cases is a view uh, of the world where the solid separate objects of our everyday experience somehow dissolve into patterns of relationships. Patterns of relationships that are fluid and ever changing. The world is intrinsically dynamic uh, the dance of Shiva, for instance, in the Indian uh, Hinduism is a very potent symbol of that. And so those two uh, characteristics of uh, the observed reality, the, uh, the fact that there are no objects, uh, patterns of relationships, and the fact that these relationships are intrinsically dynamic, and cannot be fully described in ordinary language. Those are sort of the basic elements of my thesis. And then in the book, I laid this out, you know, going into detailed descriptions of modern physics and a detailed review of Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, the main scriptures and the main, um, you know, mystics and, and their pronouncements. So in the Western way of thinking, we are often seeing religion or spirituality and science as being at odds or in tension in some way, that we imagine that science is about what is provable, and if it is not provable, then uh, it either is not true or is simply in the realm of faith. Um, and so we view, you know, certainly in the in the social context, 
um, there's great tension between these two worlds, but you don't see it that way. Yeah. Well, first of all, and this is an insight I had much later, uh, it is very important to distinguish between spirituality and religion. And so the tension and the antagonisms and the conflicts throughout history from uh, Galileo on, you know, Giordano Bruno in, in uh, the 17th century uh, to our modern times, the, the basic antagonism is between science and religion, not between science and spirituality. Now, what's the difference? The difference is that spirituality is a way of seeing the world and a way of living in the world derived from uh, extraordinary experiences, as I mentioned before, experiences which uh, can be described as states of heightened aliveness. In fact, spirit, as you know, means breath. It's the Latin word for breath, spiritus. And what it means is the breath of life. So when we feel most alive, this can be in meditation, but it can be uh, experiencing a work of art. It can be in sports. It can be in human relationships. It, it, there are many moments where we feel really, truly alive. And in those moments, we experience the world differently. And those experiences do not depend on any cultural or historical context. Then religion is the organized attempt to share this experience among a religious community. And in order to share these experiences uh, verbally, they are described and interpreted. And this interpretation is always dependent on a historical and cultural context. And an, another, another aim of religion is then to take these experiences as a basis for uh, moral rules or moral conduct of, of the religious community. And what happened throughout history uh, was that very often uh, the, the, the spiritual experience, which was at the core of religion, then got sidelined and the description in terms of dogmas and in terms of, you know, uh, rules and, and regulations, uh, laws and so on became paramount. And this is how a religion can become fundamentalist when you have to believe a certain interpretation. So uh, what I have found in my work is that not only modern physics but, all, but modern science in general, biology, psychology, uh, various other parts of modern science are very much in harmony with the uh, basic concepts of spiritual traditions around the world, whether it's you know, Native American or other indigenous traditions or Eastern spiritual traditions, Christian mysticism, Islamic mysticism, those, those are all very much in harmony. And it's when it comes to organized religion and its power structure that the problems arise. 
throughout um, following publication of the Tao of Physics, and first of all, it became an international sensation, translated into 40 languages. But many people came up to you and said it changed their life. What was so earth-shaking about what you were saying? In yes, that? I was. I was really surprised by that, and and that happened again and again. And and uh, you know to to the extent that it was always moving when people said that, but it ceased to be unfamiliar and surprising. Well, uh, it took me many years to understand that. And what happened was that in writing the Tao of Physics, I put my finger on a change of worldview that was happening not only in physics that had happened in physics in the 1920s and 1930s, but was happening in many other areas. It was happening in medicine, in healthcare, in agriculture, in anthropology, you name it. You know, after the big success of the Tao physics, I got invited to lectures and seminars in many countries in the world and by many organizations, and I met people from all walks of life. And very often after a lecture, they would tell me, you have expressed what I have felt for a long time, that this change, basically from seeing the world as a machine and you know, body and mind separated, the mind as a separate entity, uh, to seeing the world as a network, or networks within networks, you know, patterns of relationships, that this change uh, is a very broad change of worldview or change of paradigms, both in science and society, that is characteristic of the 20th century. And people felt that. And so uh, when they say it changed my life, it means that they were working as health professionals or as architects or as, as teachers in, in, in any profession. And they were unhappy with the way that they were teaching because it, it sort of uh, uh, didn't uh, agree with, with the basic intuition of the world. And now with the Tao physics, they, uh, they see that the most prestigious of the sciences leads us in this direction. So they began to act differently in their professions, to, to listen to their you know, intuitive voices, and, and that changed their lives. In the late 60s, you were uh, in California studying high energy physics and experimenting with psychedelics and meditation, uh, practicing meditation uh, and exploring Eastern mysticism. Was it jarring for you to travel between those worlds? Uh, yes, yes. It, uh, it, it was not easy. Uh, but, you know, as, as a young person, you have a lot of energy. You know, I was in my late 20s. And uh, so I would spend the day doing research and teaching at the University of California. I, I uh, spent uh, two years at the University of California in Santa Cruz, south of San Francisco on the Santa Cruz campus. I would do my research and teach. I would go to physics conferences. 
And when I came home in, in the evening, my wife and my friends had a dinner prepared and, and there, was, there was some marijuana and there was some psychedelic musics and there was this whole hippie culture in, in full swing, you know, and I, I embraced it. And, you know, next morning I took a shower and went back to my research. And, you know, when you're young, you can do that. Uh, it, it was... I don't think it was jarring uh, mentally and emotionally because I just happened to be at this Santa Cruz campus, which at the time was a very progressive campus. And so I could actually talk about philosophical insights to my colleagues, the other professors on, on the campus, or at least to some of them. What led you as a scientist, a young scientist, to want to start reading you know, Eastern mysticism to even go in that direction? Well, that's, that's really uh, an interesting question. And it is something, if you had asked me that five years ago, I would have given you a different answer. I would have said, as I said a few minutes ago, this was the trend in the 60s, you know, Eastern philosophy was very much en vogue. But what actually happened was that I found... Uh, my interest in and access to Eastern philosophy through the arts. Uh, my mother was a poet and she was very uh, well versed with uh, poetry internationally. And so she knew about the uh, poetry movement known as the Beat Generation in San Francisco in the 1950s. And she gave me a book by Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who was one of the beat poets who recently died at the age of 100. And the book is one of his classic books of poetry. It's called A Coney Island of the Mind. And through Ferlinghetti, I became interested in the beat poets and the beat poets were very interested in Zen Buddhism, you know, Jack Kerouac, Gary Snyder and, and these poets. And so my, my access to Eastern philosophy was through the beat poetry. And then when I uh, studied the, the writings of Eastern mystics and the religious texts, I not only studied the texts, but I looked at art books of Indian art, you know, these beautiful sculptures of gods and goddesses and paintings. And, and, and also uh, I was very attracted to Indian music and Indian music actually became, you know, a major tool for me uh, for meditation, uh, especially the music of Ali Akbar Khan, whom I admired very much. Also, of course, Ravi Shankar was a big hero. But, but not only those, there were many Indian musicians like Bishmilla Khan, who played the, uh, the, a type of Indian flute. It's called the Shenai. And so I... I really enjoyed Indian music and I went to concerts of Indian music, which we had in the Bay Area. And so uh, uh, my, my access to Eastern mysticism was through the arts. And then, you know, the connections with physics began to appear. As somebody who was deeply influenced by the counterculture of the 60s and the New Age movement that followed, um, you know, there's there's a great uh, debate over what is the legacy. 
what was accomplished, what would you say is the legacy of the counterculture movement? Well, uh, let let me mention that, um, you know, I recently published, published a book of essays going back 50 years. And uh, one of the essays is about the counterculture and it's called the legacy, the spirit and legacy of the 60s. Um, the book is called Patterns of Connection. It just came out, great. And so, what I say there is that I describe the 60s movement in all its dimension, in, in the uh, expansion of consciousness toward the spiritual uh, dimension, also the expansion of social consciousness, the protest movements, civil rights movement, the student movements, the Prague Spring and various political movements. And uh, I say that, uh, you know, one of the legacies is, uh, is maybe, maybe more superficial, but it is the, the uh, sort of uh, uh, characteristic lifestyle that we adopted in the 1960s, which was very controversial, which was ridiculed, uh, and and it was 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 often uh, you know persecuted by the police. This lifestyle is now very largely accepted by the mainstream. You know, think of meditation practice. Um, you know, in in the in the sixties when you worked in a company and there was a meeting planned, you couldn't say I can't make it to the meeting. I have my qigong practice. You know. Today is no problem. It's generally accepted. And of course, you know, fashion, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the long hair we were wearing, all of this is, is totally accepted now. But at a deeper level, I think uh, for me, the main legacy of, of the 1960s is that we envisioned an alternative lifestyle uh, a lifestyle that uh, was community-oriented, that uh, was ecological, that came a little later, but it was not, not far away, that was feminist, that was peaceful. And this then acquired a new dimension, as you mentioned, with the New Age movement in the 1970s, became politically grounded in the 1980s with green politics. And then uh, two decades later, we had the emergence of a global civil society, which is still extremely active today. And all these, these movements we have today, these, these uh, youth movements like the Sunrise Movement and Extinction Rebellion and Fridays for Future, these climate-oriented uh, movements, you know, all go back to uh, this uh, broader movement of the global civil society, which has very deep roots, both personally and in terms of values in the 1960s. So the 1960s continued, and you could even make the point that uh, the end of the Cold War was an achievement of the 60s ultimately, because it gave rise to the peace movement in the 70s and 80s. And then with Gorbachev appearing in the Soviet Union, 
and the links between Gorbachev and the peace movement, which I also describe in my essays, by the way, uh, this, this then led to the end of the Cold War under, under Reagan. And so there, there are a lot of legacies. You describe, so you, you had great impact in the larger society, bringing the world of science and applying the lessons of Eastern mysticism. But your scientific colleagues were not so convinced. You describe going back to uh, CERN, I think it is, a, the, a very famous scientific institution in Europe, uh, where you were greeted with, at best, polite applause. Um, <laughs> how were you viewed by your scientist colleagues? Well, uh, the, the criticism was mild, and the, the applause was polite, but, you know, it was, it was an applause. And the reason was that in my comparison of modern physics and Eastern mysticism, I knew what I was talking about when I described modern physics. And physicists all know that to discuss the concepts of modern physics with a lay readership is not easy. It requires a lot of work and a lot of skills to formulate these concepts in everyday language. And they appreciated that and even applauded that. Uh, they didn't buy the mysticism. That's why the applause remained very polite. But over the years, this changed rather dramatically. And, uh, you know, the best example is that several decades later, CERN uh, celebrated its 50-year anniversary. And uh, CERN always had... Uh, a great relationship with India and with Indian physicists. And so the, uh, the, the country of India, the government of India donated a statue of a dancing Shiva, a, a huge, you know, two meter high statue of a dancing Shiva, which they put up in the courtyard of CERN. And next to the statue, there is now a plaque that quotes the relevance of Shiva's, the metaphor of Shiva's stance for particle physics, and the quote is taken from the Tao of Physics. So this is the official acknowledgement of CERN, you know, several decades later. And I should also say that uh, following the Tao of Physics, there has been a whole generation of books making the same point. So, you know, I, I could list probably eight or 10 books comparing, you know, physics and mysticism, other science and Eastern mysticism, spiritual traditions, and so on. So, uh, you know, the, uh, the attitudes have really changed also in the, in the science community. You describe the major problems of our time as being systemic problems. What do you mean? What I mean by that is that the major problems of our time are all interconnected and interdependent. You cannot solve any of them in isolation. You cannot solve, for instance, the energy problem that we need energy to, to you know, drive our economy and our industrial productions and so on. You cannot solve that from uh, the climate crisis. You, you cannot uh, separate that from the climate crisis uh, you cannot separate the climate crisis 
from the way we do our food production, the food system, industrial agriculture is a major contributor to the climate crisis and also a major contributor to the health crisis. Uh, the economic, the obsession with economic growth and expansion has led us to massively intrude into ecosystems which have uh, fractured the relationships in those systems. And one of the consequences has been that viruses that used to live in symbiosis with certain animal species where they did no harm, when they were exposed, they jumped from those species to humans where they you know, turned out to be the HIV virus and, and now the coronavirus. So again, these pandemics are related to you know, economic and corporate growth, to uh, you know, the way we treat the environment. And I just could go on and on um, that these, these problems are all interrelated. And so in order to understand and solve them, we need to be able to think systemically in terms of relationships, in terms of patterns, in terms of context. And so this systemic thinking, which I began to explore way back in the Tao physics with quantum physics, is very necessary now in all our disciplines to solve the major problems of our time. I think of the climate crisis as one that looms very large as a systemic problem. And, you know, right. when it was first described, it was described in terms of these enormous feedback loops that when you warm the ocean, it warms the air and causes the storms. And, and those feedback loops were very unpredictable because of how powerful, you know, the multiplier effects were. Um, what does a systemic solution look like to a problem that we now see at a magnitude that we seem unable to deal with? Well, the systemic, in this case, uh, the systemic solution is actually very simple. The, uh, the climate uh, phenomena are extremely complex because the climate system in the atmosphere and oceans and earth is a highly nonlinear system. It's very difficult to model mathematically, although we have made a lot of progress. And so we know today that a heating of the atmosphere by burning fossil fuels, by emitting methane and other greenhouse gases, this, this excessive heating of the atmosphere creates excessive energy and excessive moisture in the atmosphere. And that is the origin of a whole series of uh, severe climate problems from uh, droughts and wildfires to uh, you know, floods, inundations, uh, to uh, the melting of glaciers, the rising of the sea level, uh, hurricanes, tornadoes, and so on and so on. Now, the system is so complex that we cannot predict when a certain effect will happen and where it will happen. 
but we can make qualitative predictions, which means that we can say in general, these, these consequences will become more frequent and will become more violent. And climate scientists have made this prediction, you know, 20, 30 years ago, and, and were not listened to by, by you know, uh, corporate and political leaders. And now we are living it. We have, we have you know, as we speak, there are, there are tremendous floods in, in British Columbia and the Pacific Northwest. We have had uh, wildfires like never before in California and in many other places around the world. Uh, we have had stronger hurricanes. We, we have had all these consequences. Now, you just have to go back in, in, in this um, argument, in this description, and see that we need two things. We need to reduce our emissions of CO2, which is the major greenhouse gas, also the methane emissions. And since there's already too much carbon in, in the atmosphere, exceeding safe levels, we have to draw down the carbon. So in the first case, we, we need to leave fossil fuels in the ground. And it was very disheartening to see at the last climate conference, the COP26 in, in Glasgow, that nobody said that, you know, none of these governments committed themselves, well, I shouldn't say none, but the, the big polluters and, 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 and the big governments, uh, United States, China, Russia, and so on, UK, did not commit themselves to leaving fossil fuels in the ground. Uh, the smaller governments, Denmark and Costa Rica, created something called a Beyond Coal and Oil Alliance. They committed themselves. So the first, the first step will be to replace fossil fuels systematically with renewable energy in all our energy needs. And we have the technologies to do that today. We have the means. It's not a, a technical problem or conceptual problem. It's not even a financial problem. It's a problem of you know, uh, corporate influence uh, and political will. But even so, we need to draw down uh, CO2 from the atmosphere. And the only technology that is proven is the technology, you know, developed by evolution, photosynthesis. And we can draw down massive amounts of CO2 by planting trees and also by shifting from industrial to organic agriculture. But let me tell you more about the, the tree planting. Uh, two years ago, there was a significant study at the Swiss University, ETH, known by its German initials. It's a very prestigious Swiss university. And uh, they studied how many trees can be planted on the planet without infringing on living space and on agricultural space. And they found that we could plant 1.2 trillion trees. And of course, they also studied which trees would be planted where and so on. It's very detailed. And they estimated that if we did that, we would draw down two thirds of all the CO2 emitted in human history. So this solves the climate problem. We, we know the solution and planting trees is not difficult. 
It needs to be organized. It's cheap and, and it's the most effective solution. So the problem doesn't lie in, in technology or you know, conceptual problems. You were writing your newest book, Patterns of Connection, and just about the time you were finishing it in early 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic right. comes and sweeps across the world. How do you view the pandemic in the context of your other writings and analysis of systemic problems and the solutions? Yeah. Well, I alluded to that uh, a little while ago. Uh, I see uh, the uh, coronavirus as a biological response of Gaia, our living planet, to the ecological and social emergency that humanity has brought upon itself. So as I mentioned before, we know that the origin of the pandemic lies in the coronavirus jumping from a species of bats to humans in China. And from there, it uh, spread rapidly around the world. So the ecological imbalance is a in massive intrusion into ecosystems. We need to stop that. We need to restore ecosystems to uh, reestablish the, the balance that uh, we have destroyed. And then when it comes to the spread of the virus, uh, we see that obviously population density is a key variable. Right now, we are at a stage where many countries in the world have overcome the pandemic. Countries like New Zealand, for instance, you know, Australia largely, you know, Finland, Vietnam. There are many countries that have practically overcome the pandemic. Others had overcome it, and then there are new surges now. And vaccination, of course, plays a major role. But also <coughs> the social distance people keep and the population density. Now, when you look at population density, you see that very often it is a consequence of the unequal distribution of wealth and of profit maximizing. One of the first centers of the spread of the coronavirus were cruise ships, you know, at the very beginning of the pandemic, where people are really uh, you know, put into very tight spaces so, so as to maximize the profit of, of, of the cruise line. Uh, uh, another center were meatpacking factories, again, where workers worked very tightly together so as to maximize the profit. And of course, uh, social inequality leads to housing situations where you have families of five or eight living in the room. And so uh, the lesson to be learned is that in the long run, we will not be able to avoid pandemics like uh, COVID-19 if we do not uh, alleviate poverty and economic inequality. That's the basic lesson to learn. So there's an ecological imbalance and a social imbalance, and both go hand in hand and uh, we will have new virus uh, uh, varieties uh, emerging uh, if we don't take care of the, both the ecological and social imbalance. You write that you believe that COVID can ultimately save humanity. What do you mean by that? Well, 
uh, it goes back to the interconnectedness of our global problems. If we take these lessons and uh, improve the social injustice and restore ecological balance, this will uh, not only uh, protect us from future pandemics, but will also have a large effect on, on climate, on you know, species extinction, on the uh, depletion of natural resources, all the problems we have in, in the various facets of our crisis, all this would improve. So this is the basic lesson to learn. You've been involved both a, a witness to and participant in the rise of green politics uh, around the world. But right now at this moment, uh, green politics is in great conflict with rising authoritarianism and fascist movements around the world and in this country. Um, what explains that backlash? Well, uh, this is uh, a complicated story. In, in my view, what happened, you know, I, I left out when... A little while ago, we were talking about these various movements from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and I, I ended with the rise of the global civil society, but I left out a critical piece in the 1990s. What happened in the 1990s was something that took everybody by surprise, and it was the, uh, in the, the uh, information technology revolution which led to a new kind of economy, a global economy based on electronic and computer networks, and it created a new materialism and uh, a new corporate dominance. And it took the counter movements a whole decade to come to grips with that. And at the end of the 1990s, we had this rise of the uh, global civil society. Uh, but uh, what happened with this corporate-driven globalization is that it dramatically increased social inequality. And people, working class people, especially in rural areas, were really suffering from, from that uh, globalization. And so in... As a response to that suffering, in many countries, there were you know, populist leaders who came onto the scene and say, well, I'm going to fight for you, like Donald Trump did, who became president here. I'm going to fight for you. And uh, the reason why you're suffering is you know, the Washington insiders, and I'm going to clean it all up and so on. Of course, he did nothing like that, but uh, many people fell for that. Or in Europe, in the UK, people were suffering, especially in, in the northern part of England. And then the people who promoted Brexit came along and say, it's all the fault of the bureaucrats in Brussels of the EU. Once we get out of the EU, your, your fate will improve and, and your suffering will stop. Of course, it didn't happen. On the contrary, they're worse off now than they were. But in, in both cases, 
there are populist leaders. Bolsonaro, the president of Brazil, is another example. And and even when it's not personified in a single leader, there were you know populist movements and you know right wing parties that that were rising. And uh, in in a democracy, it this uh, sort of works itself out. And in Europe, for example, uh, we have uh, a multi-party system where, you know, you have a right-wing party, the populist party of that kind, that gets elected, not, not, you know, comes in maybe third or fourth, but has seats in parliament. And then they don't really know how to govern and they get voted out in the next election. Here in the United States, it's more complicated because the these movements are all within the two parties, and the two party system hides a lot of the, uh, you know, the detailed movements. But uh, we also, uh, I would say, green politics. To come back to your question, is not linked to green parties, and in in the previous decades, it has spread. I would say that uh, your senator uh, and our hero, Bernie Sanders, is uh, a great representative of green politics. He never uses the term, but, you know, he's, he's progressive. He's a, a shining light of green politics. So green politics doesn't necessarily need a green party, but it has spread. I'm curious, since you grew up in Austria, uh, you and certainly your family has firsthand experience of the rise of authoritarian and fascist movements. Do you see parallels between the uh, what is happening now in the U.S. and uh, the you know the country that you grew up in? Yeah, yeah, I see. I see many parallels, although uh, they are not very clear to me because I was born in 1939. So during the fascist regime, I was a small child. And uh, also I grew up on a farm. So we were relatively isolated from what was going on in, in the war and in, in politics. But nevertheless, you know, I, I have studied the, the, the Nazi movement, of course. And so I see, I see many parallels. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, the influence of, uh, of political leaders on uh, the parliament, on, on the courts. Uh, you know, the Nazis had a, a propaganda ministry, which was extremely effective and, and you know, very, very, very creative. And, uh, you know, here during the Trump presidency, uh, we had and still have uh, the right-wing radio stations who are, and, and Fox News, you know, they are a kind of, Propaganda ministry, um, not not now, but in in the previous administration, they they functioned like that, and so you know the way politicians deal with truth, their their sometimes complete disregard of truth, you know, is is reminiscent of fascism. So yes, there are many parallels, but I should also say that I believe that our political structures are much more robust than the German and Austrian structures were, you know, during the Nazi regime, which, which followed the Great Depression. 
where you know the country was in complete shambles. We are nowhere near that now. And so although the parallels are there, uh, I don't think we need to be frightened by them. As you are now uh, reflecting on your career and your the evolution of your thinking, does it leave you hopeful or quite concerned about the moment we are in right now? Well, I would say both. It leaves me hopeful and concerned. You cannot, you have to be concerned if you really see what's going on. But uh, I can tell you that I, uh, during the last 20 years, I have found great solace in a meditation about hope by uh, one of the key figures of recent uh, dramatic cultural changes and political changes, Václav Havel, the playwright and former president of the Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia, as it was called then. And I close my book, Patterns of Connection, with a quotation from Havel that I would like to read to you, where he turns the question of hope on a meditation of the nature of hope. So Havel writes, the kind of hope that I often think about, I understand above all as a state of mind, not a state of the world. Either we have hope within us or we don't. It is a dimension of the soul and it's not essentially dependent on some particular observation of the world or estimate of the situation. Hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it will turn out. So I've, I've found great uh, support in, from, from you know, this quotation that I've tried to, to arrange my life accordingly. Hmm. Well, Fritjof Capra, I wanna thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you, David, that's been a great pleasure. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.